Good morning. There's a phrase that uh, is often used to describe the main thought I have for the message today, and that is opportunity knocks. Opportunity knocks. I have a picture that goes along with that. No, I don't have a picture that goes along with that. All right. <laughs> I'll tell you a story instead. When I was about uh, 12 years old, my parents ventured to take me and my siblings all the way to the United States of America. I, I was born and grew up in Israel, the land of Israel. And uh, we stopped along the way in different places, and one of them was New York. And in New York, my parents were even braver, and they ventured to take us to the New York Zoo. Now, mind you, they weren't intending to leave us in one of the cages. They just wanted us to see the sights. And uh, one of the sites that really had an impression upon me and my siblings was the water fountain. And uh, the reason for that, the water fountains was full of change. There was pennies and nickels, dimes, quarters, maybe even some larger currencies of exchange. And uh, for me and my brother and sister, it was opportunity knocks. And uh, I imagine my parents tried to dissuade us somewhat from going in there, but eventually they just found a faraway bench to sit while me and my siblings were foraging through the water fountain and collecting coins. And uh, probably gathered around $20 worth of change between the three of us. What do you do when opportunity knocks? There you go. Before we uh, start with the passage of today, I, I promised last week that uh, every time I speak on Hebrews, Lord willing, uh, we'll go ahead and review the key verses of the book, which I uh, suggested would be Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Now, I just said it last week, so I'm not expecting anybody has it memorized yet. But in the future, if you have taken the time to memorize it, I'd like to give you an opportunity to recite it from up here for the saints. Since uh, I'm not expecting that to have happened, we'll go ahead and, and read it together again like we did last week. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, so looking unto Jesus, if I would say, there's a key phrase in the book of Hebrews, it would be looking unto Jesus. And that's what we will do today as well. And the passage for today is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So we'll have the verses up there if you have your Bible, your favorite translation, obviously. You're welcome to use that. But Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, 
lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also, bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. A good friend of mine used to say, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? <laughs> Meaning, what, what is it talking about? Well, it's talking about chapter 1. Uh, just to, to, we could start off by just looking at verse 1 of chapter 1. It said, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son. So the point of the book of Hebrews, at least the way it's opening up, is there's been a message from God, and it was delivered through God the Son. And then the rest of Hebrews chapter 1 talked about who this person is, who God the Son is, the Lord Jesus. And now the therefore, because of the fact that God chose to speak to us through Jesus, and because of who Jesus is, we ought to pay attention, right? That's what he means when he says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Now, there's a warning here. It says, lest we drift away. And there's all kinds of thoughts associated with that. First of all, what do we mean by drifting away? I think I may have a, a picture of a, of a boat or a mood. Uh, probably uh, Jania could tell us what this is faster than anybody else. <laughs> Anchor line. Very good. So somebody has a boat, right? He doesn't want the boat to drift away, right, with the tide. He ties it securely to, to uh, an anchor or to a, um, some attachment of that sort at the, at the uh, port, would you say? What would you call that? Dock. Dock. Okay. You want to make sure your boat stays, right? And what the suggestion is here is if we're not paying close attention to what Jesus says, we might drift away. Now, uh, this comes in, in a couple of forms, a couple of ways of thinking about it. Uh, first of all, Jesus is offering us eternal salvation. Right? And we, as believers in Jesus, have come to him, have put our trust in him to save us from our sins. Right? Now, if, you, if you're connected like that to Jesus... You're not going to drift away, right? But there's a danger of drifting away. It's what he's, he's pointing to. Now, we uh, know, understand as believers, that our salvation is secure. We can't actually lose. If you're really saved, you can't really lose your salvation. Now, you could lose the enjoyment of it, right? We have great reasons to be in joy. We just sang about how wonderful, how wonderful you know, the Lord Jesus is and what he did for us. Now, we don't always feel that way. Why not? Because we don't always look unto Jesus, right? We're not always thinking of what he did for us. So we can drift away as believers from the enjoyment of the salvation we have in God. But we also need to remember that uh, whenever we talk about the church, we're talking about a mixed crowd, right? Not everybody who comes to church is a true believer in the Lord Jesus. Now, we welcome people to come, right? We want them to come. We want them to hear. And it's a good, thing when they, a good thing that they come. It shows an interest in the Lord Jesus. And the church to whom this letter was written was no different. There was a mix. There were two believers who have anchored themselves. They're connected to the Lord Jesus. They're never going to come off. 
And then you have some that are just visiting, right? Or maybe even think that they're Christian. I thought I was a Christian before I was really saved. So it's possible that there's people who will really drift away. They've come, they're interested, but they haven't really made that full commitment to the Lord Jesus. They haven't tied the knot, if you would. And as a result, there's a real danger that they will drift away. They haven't really secured their salvation. And now, as a result of the persecution they're enduring, that the book refers to, there's a chance that people saying, you know what, I'm not interested. If, if, if this is what it means to be a Christian, people come into my house and take all my stuff, and then they put me in jail, I'm not sure I want to be a Christian. Right? I mean, that's reasonable. If you're not truly saved, why would you stick around when things like that happen? Okay, verse 2, he says, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? One of the things I mention about the book of Hebrews is there's often a comparison to something in the Old Testament, which is one of the reasons we know it was written to people from a Hebrew background. And uh, what, what the author does is he points to an Old Testament truth and he uses it to focus our attention or appreciate more a New Testament truth. So the Old Testament truth here is the fact uh, God spoke through angels in the past. Now, what he's referring to is the law of Moses. And when we think about uh, the nation of Israel gathering to Mount Sinai and uh, the mountain burning with fire and smoke and a voice coming out of there speaking the Ten Commandments and then eventually Moses going up on the mountain and God giving him the, the two tablets, right? Remember all of that? We don't typically think of angels. The New Testament people thought of angels as we have a reference, for example, in the book of Galatians. There Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? He's talking about the law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions, till the seed, talking about Jesus, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hands of a mediator. So it's not just the book of Hebrews that sees angels on Mount Sinai. There's other places in the New Testament that see it. So we believe it's true. There were really angels involved. But in the Old Testament, it wasn't mentioned. Somehow the people in the New Testament knew it, and they're telling us about it. Okay, but the law of Moses uh, is really what's being brought here into focus. Now it says, if the word spoken by angel proved steadfast, if the law of Moses proved steadfast, how did it prove to be steadfast? Well, it proved to be steadfast because there on Mount Sinai, God gave the, the Jews a set of laws, and he says, if you keep these set of laws, everything is going to be wonderful. You're going to be the most blessed nation on the face of the earth. If you don't do what the law says, well, I will have to judge you for disobeying my law. And the truth is, you'll become the least envied nation on the face of the earth. You'll be full of the judgments of God, right? Well, the nation of Israel, you know, put their hand in the breast and said, all that the Lord says, we will do. Right? They thought this was a good deal. Or maybe when God spoke to them from Mount Sinai, they didn't think they had an option, right? So they went with it. And, and then as you look at the Old Testament, you actually see a history of them breaking the word of God, the law that God gave them, and as a result, God judging them. There's a, uh, anybody knows for how long the nation of Israel was exiled in Babylon? 
Eliana? 70 years? That is correct, 70 years. Anybody knows why? Why was it for 70 years? Right, the Sabbath. So God, in his commandment to, to the Jews, he gave them all kinds of laws, and one of them that they needed every seventh year not to till the ground. The ground was supposed to allow to rest, right? Like, just like people were supposed to rest every seventh day, the ground was to be allowed to rest every seventh year. And because the Jews didn't obey that commandment, 70 times at least, God says, well, I'm going to now judge you and take you out of the land. And this is now like a thousand years later. You know, God remembers what he said. And that's what I mean, every word proved steadfast. Right? When God was speaking to Israel in the Old Testament, he meant what he said. Right? That's the point. And because of that, we should consider that we have this new message from God, the message that the Lord Jesus brought to us. God means what he says. Right? That's the main, main point of why he's bringing that uh, into focus. Okay. Then we can start to appreciate here what was the message that the Lord was bringing us through uh, that, that God was speaking through the Lord Jesus as we look at verse uh, 3. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So what's the difference? So here on Mount Sinai, God gave Israel the law. And maybe it seemed like a good deal at first, right? God promised blessings if they obey his law. I mean, that could be a good thing. Now, there was the other side. If you're not going to keep the law, there's going to be judgment. Well, in the case of Jesus... It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So Jesus didn't come to give us another law. He didn't say, you know what? Israel didn't do so good. But I'll give you guys a fresh chance. And now, not just Israel, the whole world. I'll give you a new set of laws, and if you can keep it, wonderful. If you can't, I'm sorry. That's the other side of the coin. He, he comes with a message of salvation. Right? There's no new law that Jesus brought to us. It's a message of salvation. How can we go to heaven? Right? I mean, that's good news. That's opportunity knocks, right? Then he says that it's um, a great salvation, right? He did, Jesus didn't bring us a message of salvation. That would be wonderful. But he brought us the message of a great salvation. So I, I was trying to think of different ways in which this is a great salvation. And I'm sure each of you or a number of you could add quite a bit to the list. This is by no means exhaustive. But... Uh, First of all, what's great about it? Well, what it saves us from. It saves us from sin. It saves us from sin. Now, we don't appreciate how wonderful it is to be saved from sin, so I always seek for illustrations to try to help us think of, of what kind of a salvation this is. And last time, I used the illustration of a plane crashing into the sea and, uh, and then you know, a boat coming by and offering to save you. And my wife... To, Yesterday told me, you know, that's really not a good, good illustration. Because, you know, when a plane crashes to the sea, there's no survivors. Right? And it's true. It's very unlikely anyone will ever survive if the plane crashes into the sea. So I was trying to think a little bit of that. And uh, what, what I came to was a flight MH370. Anybody remembers that? MH370. Two years ago, maybe a little bit more than two years ago. There was a flight that was headed to Indonesia. I'm sorry, from uh, Indonesia or maybe Malaysia, I forget, to China. And for unknown reasons, I think to today, we don't know why, the pilot makes a U-turn on his way to China and goes to about the most remote spot 
of the ocean. Now, why he did it, I can't imagine. I mean, it, people, people believe he had it all planned out and um, you know, was kind of a way of committing suicide and taking another two, three hundred people with him. But uh, for whatever reason, he, didn't, he, he could have just crashed right down, right? Get to 30,000 feet, nose down. You know, that's a much faster way to go. I mean, why fly for eight hours into the middle of the ocean? So I don't know. Maybe he was just completely confused, right? Or maybe he had some other strange idea in mind. But let's say he did that, and after eight hours, he runs out of fuel. What do you do when you run out of fuel? Well, you try to do the softest landing you can. It's theoretically possible a plane could land on water. Now, the plane's not going to survive very long on water. It's not designed to be a flotation device. But in theory, people could be saved. It happened before. Well, Jets landed in water, and the people in the water survived. So let's say that was you. Let's say you were, if you were unfortunate enough to have been on that flight, MH370. You're now in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Let me tell you something about it. Not only is that very remote, you're thousands of miles from land, no boat ever goes there. Right? It's not like between the United States and China, well, there's lots of shipping going back and forth. So the possibility of a boat coming by is not remote, and well, not impossible. No boat goes over there. It doesn't lead you anywhere. I mean, maybe uh, if you were in Malaysia or India and you wanted to go to the South Pole, right, you will go through that spot. But I mean, South Pole is not a major tourist attraction, last time I heard. So it's very unlikely. So let's say you were there. Now. This is a good description of what sin does to us, right? When, when we chose to sin, when Adam and Eve chose to sin, they landed us as far away from God as is possible, right? The distance is enormous. We are sinners. God is holy, right? What can reconcile that distance? Uh, now, we have things like religions, right? There's lots of world religions. And uh, world religions will tell you things like, well, we have a law. We have a, a whole set of good things you can do. And if you do those good things, we think you'll probably go to heaven. Mind, you also have, we have another list of bad things. You have to not do the bad. Do the good things, don't do the bad things, and we think you have a good chance. Right? Now, let me tell you what I think that's like in the illustration I have. You can keep that picture up, by the way. <laughs> it would be like, you know, the plane survives. There's some flotation devices, right? I mean, there's these little gigs, you know, can fit 20 people. And somebody says, I still have my cell phone with me. It has a GPS. Land is that way, right? And you know, we have a couple of pair of oars for each one. Let's start rowing. What's the chance someone can row to Australia from a few thousand miles away in the middle of the Indian Ocean? Very small, very small. And this is an understatement to the difficulty of bridging the distance between a sinner and God. For me, in my own effort to somehow make it to God would be more difficult than someone to row themselves across the Indian Ocean, right, in a little flotation device. What do we have instead? Jesus. The word Jesus means salvation. And he was... It was said, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save us from our sins. Now, when we say Jesus saves us, we mean that he does all the work. So now it, it goes back to the picture of the boat. A boat shows up and says, you know, we'll give you a lift. 
get on board, right? And takes you to safety. Australia, wherever you want to go, right? You're now safe. Who's doing the work? It's the boat, right? The captain of the ship, they saved you. You did nothing, right? That's how salvation is like. Jesus comes and he offers complete salvation. Praise God. How great a salvation. So that's one. The next, uh, I was thinking of how great a salvation, what he saves us to. He saves us from sin, that's great. He saves us to have an eternal relationship with God. Right? You can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. God is offering you a personal relationship through the Lord Jesus. How great a salvation. Uh, third, you can lose the picture now. <laughs> third, uh, I was thinking who he saves, who he saves. We often say, I quote John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. After the crash in, uh, of MH370, Rescue boats were sent from all kinds of countries. Let's imagine that this really happened. They, you had everybody, all the survivors from the plane kind of floating around, and uh, a U.S. ship gets there first. And they'll say, if you are a U.S. citizen, you're allowed on our boat. Well, I mean, if I don't happen to be an American citizen, that would be pretty sad for me, right? But Jesus said, whoever whoever believes. It's a salvation offered for everybody. If you're here today alive and breathing, Jesus is offering you salvation. How great a salvation. Uh, the fourth thing, I, fourth thing I was thinking about is the cost. Now it has two, two sides for this. Um, what does it cost? Again, let's, let's imagine you were in that situation. You, you, you were floating on water. And a boat shows up to save you. They pull you up. How much did you pay for that? That was free. Right? Now, what if you would have had to pay for that? What do you think is a bill of sending you know, a ship with sailors and everybody? Usually these are big ships from the United States to that remote spot in, uh, in the Indian Ocean and, and send you the bill after they saved you. Any idea what that would cost? There was an estimate that $130 million was spent on sending ships to that spot to try to look for people. You wouldn't want to get that bill, would you? <laughs> Salvation is free for you, right? The Bible says, come buy bread without money, right? It costs you nothing. Jesus invites you to freely enjoy his salvation. It costs you nothing. How great a salvation. But there is the other side. Somebody had to pay the bill. Someone had to pay for those ships. Those sailors were not there for free, right? I mean, Matt, did you ever serve for free in the Navy? Nope. They all get paid. Somebody had to pay. That boat wasn't built for free. Somebody had to give a lot of money for a boat like that to be built, right? Same thing with your salvation. It was not free. It was expensive to bring you from the ocean of, of sin to be able to have a relationship with God. That is expensive. This is what 
First Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's the blood of Christ. We often sing and talk about the Lord Jesus dying on the cross. He didn't do that for fun. Right? He did it for you to pay for your sins. It was expensive for God. How great a salvation. Okay, that's all I have for how great a salvation. Again, I'm happy to, to have the rest of you add to that later as you think of other ways in which God's salvation is great. But right there, we see it was a great salvation. Now, something else we learn from this same verse, right? So we're, we're in that verse or phrase saying, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The amazing thing is that you do have the ability of neglecting this, this salvation. Opportunity knocks means there's an opportunity, but you could refuse to open the door. Right? And the same is true about the salvation that God offers you. He doesn't force himself upon you. God never forced himself on anyone. But he made this way of salvation. It would be like the boat coming and saying, we're here to save you guys. And you're floating there in the Indian Ocean and you say, no, thank you. I think I can make it on my gig. Right? I don't really need your help. Thank you very much. How can you even suggest that I need your help? Right? I can do this by myself. You'd, you'd say someone is lunatic to say something like that, but in theory, it's possible. I don't know what they would do. I mean, I guess you can shoot a dart into person and drag him on board unconscious, but I don't know if the Navy practices such methods. God doesn't, will not force you to be saved. It's an offer of salvation, and it's up to you to accept it. Fourth, though, it says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. There is no other escape, right? God, praise God, there is a way of salvation. Praise God, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He made a way for you to be saved. But there is no other way, right? So if you choose to say no, if you say, no, thank you, I'm not interested in what you have to offer, don't expect God to let you in some other way, right? He made a way for you to be saved. Take it. Okay, um, we're going to close with, with the uh, last portion here, which starts with the word, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord. So here we have all these good reasons given to us of why we should take this salvation. That's right? so opportunity knocks. We have an opportunity to be saved and, and go to heaven. But, you know, here's all these good reasons of why we should take God on, of why we should believe this message of salvation. And the first one, it says that it began to be spoken by the Lord. This is again in contrast to God speaking to the nation of Israel out of Mount Sinai. So, I mean, that would be great, right? God speaks powerfully from a mountain. Well, here we have God becoming a man. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It cost God a lot more to bring us this message of salvation than to speak you know, in fire and smoke and an earthquake out of Mount Sinai. Okay, that's nothing for God to, 
you know, to make this phenomena happen, right? It was a lot more for God to put flesh upon himself and enter this creation as a man. A much more powerful word. Uh, second, it says it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Now, we may think that we want God to just speak to us out, out of heaven. God, if you want to get my attention, you talk to me directly. I don't want anybody else in between. Right? A lot of people say that. You know, when that happens, people often change their mind. That's what God did with the nation of Israel. And we'll go into it later on in Hebrew. They begged Moses to go up to God by himself and say, let not God speak to us anymore or we're going to die. That's how they felt after God speaking to them. On another occasion, God speaks to Jesus. He says, Jesus prays to God and God speaks back to Jesus. And the people are completely confused. An angel has spoken to him. They just can't take it in, right? It's like this signal coming from heaven and people are just not able to handle it, right? So we think we want God to speak to us out of heaven. History shows otherwise. Now, so how would you communicate if you're God? I have here, uh, so it says here, first of all in this verse, it says, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Right, so people got to see Jesus, and they got to hear what Jesus said, and they were the ones who then went and told other people about him. Okay, and you know, we may not be impressed with that, but I don't think we often think about how complicated it is to communicate something. So I have kind of this picture of, uh, of what happens when you actually hear something. You think that you're hearing me, right? You think that you know what's in my mind. But there's really a very complicated process that goes. So I have a thought in my mind. And uh, the only way you have a chance of knowing about it is I have this complicated you know, muscle system and, and tool that God gave me in my throat and my mouth that is able to create sound waves. That's all that comes out of me is a bunch of sound waves. These are pressure waves in the air. This is your science lesson for today. And uh, those sound waves or pressure waves propagate through the air and they infringe upon your ear. And in your ear you have another very complicated system where you have an eardrum that responds to these pressure waves and then a set of bones and other tools that transfer it to your mind and somehow your mind interprets this serious, uh, series of waves you know, as a communication. Right? And, and somehow what's in my mind goes to your mind, right? Through this very complicated process. How would God speak to us? This is how God chose to do it. So when he was here on earth, he chose 12 people. He says, uh, Jesus <clears throat> went up on a mountain and called to him those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, they, that he might send them out to preach. So what Jesus, what God decided to do as a means of communication to you and me, he chose 12 guys, and he had them spend with him 24-7 for three years. Right? Do you think they would get to know Jesus after that? Pretty good. If you try to stick with someone 24-7 for three years, you'll get a good idea of who they are. <laughs> Sometimes you'll be surprised. So these people got a first-hand view of God. They really got to know God in the flesh. Right? And then afterward, he sends them to preach. They become these sound waves. 
right? Instead of using airwaves as a media of communication, he's using people. These people who had an opportunity of really getting to know Jesus can now go and tell somebody else, this is what Jesus is like. Right? I think that's a good method. <clears throat> now you would say, well, 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 okay. But nobody ever came to me and told me that personally saw the Lord Jesus. You know what? You have something better. Because those people spent their time to write down the same thing they told people. And you have a condensed form of really what a lot of the apostles said. If, 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 if an apostle was around today, he couldn't afford to spend a lot of time with you. He, you know, he'll meet you in Starbucks and share with you for 30 minutes, and then he needs to move on to the next person. Right? You're not going to get that much in 30 minutes. You have a, a book that you could spend days, weeks, months, years to investigate and get into. I, I can really get to know God through the scriptures. Because those, all these things they know and they experience, they put down in a book that I can read and spend as much time as I want. I think that's wonderful. Right? Quite a privilege we have today. But third, this is not the only reason to believe. The third reason he gives to us is God himself. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles. A lot of you know that I have a daughter named Nessia, but I don't know how many of you know what Nessia means. The word uh, Yah often refers to God or Jehovah. What does Ness mean? Anybody know? Sorry? Thought I heard somebody say. Okay. If you're talking to me, you gotta shout because my ears do not work well. What? Uh, you can't do that, Jake. He always does it. You got my notes. That's not fair. <laughs> Ness, Ness means miracle, or it could mean a standard. And uh, the uh, image that comes here to me is uh, in, in olden days when you had uh, a military le leader in a military, in an army, he would hold a standard or he would have a standard bearer, somebody else that held it for him. Why? So that everybody far away could tell where he was and where he was going. And uh, that's the way God uses miracles. He used miracles to show his presence and where he was going. Right? And that's why um, in the gospel we see Jesus doing so many miracles. Uh, so many texts I could choose. Just one I chose, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 23. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them all. So here we have Jesus starts by going around and, and telling people the gospel, and then he starts healing people, and pretty soon people hear about it, and they start sending sick people to him from everywhere. It says all of Syria. Syria was a major Roman province, right? So... Uh, Israel was not. You know, you had Judah, the Galilee. Those were kind of very backwater places. Syria was a major province of the Roman Empire. And all these people from this major province are hearing about it, about him. And they're starting to send him all the worst cases that they have, right? The, the easy cases, you can let the local doctors treat. They don't have to go hundreds of miles to see Jesus. But if there's somebody you, you just can't heal, right, you send them to a specialist. <laughs> that specialist 
was Jesus, right? He got the toughest cases, and what does it say? And he healed them all, right? No case was too hard for Jesus. Now, that wasn't the only kind of miracle Jesus did. He also made water into wine. He walked on water. Right? He multiplied bread to feed thousands. He uh, calmed the storm. Why? It was a signature of God. Right? It showed that's where God was. That's where God was operating. You can believe what Jesus said because of all the signs that were happening. It was like God putting up a standard. Here I am. This is the person you need to listen to. <clears throat> okay. Um, then we have, in gifts of the Holy Spirit, Jesus made a promise that whoever believes in him would be saved and would receive the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to a person, it gives gifts to the person. And those gifts in uh, the beginning of the church were what we would call charismatic gifts. They had signs associated with them. People would start speaking in another language they've never learned before. Or they could perform miracles. It was an evidence that what Jesus said was true. When someone believed what Jesus said, they were saved. As a result of that salvation, they received the Holy Spirit. As a result of that, they got gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you could see it physically manifested, and it was an evidence of the truth of the gospel. Now, today, we don't see that happening. We'll get into that in a minute, very often that when somebody gets saved, they start doing miraculous things, but we still see a change in their life. If you know someone who really came to Jesus and really was saved, you saw a new person. Something happened to that person. They're no longer the same way they were before. There's something different, and that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, which is an evidence of the truth of the gospel. Right? It shows that God meant what he said. When someone believes the message, he really gets saved. How do you know that person is different? The person who believed that message has changed. Okay, now I said I was going to talk about it. Why don't we see miracles all the time? And uh, the phrase here, it says, according to his own will. It's according to his own will that, that God is doing these things. So God can decide. God is very welcome to do the same miracles today he did then. Right? We're not saying God is not able to do the same miracles. Why wouldn't God do it? Why is God not doing the same magnitude of miracles today as he did when Jesus was here or the apostles were walking? I can think of a couple of reasons. The first one is miracles don't necessarily give faith. Right? Jesus did a lot of miracles. Jesus was still rejected by the majority of the nation of Israel. That's why he was crucified. Jesus was crucified because people chose to reject him in spite of all the miracles he performed. So miracles don't guarantee people will believe you. That's number one. Second, when uh, Jesus does a miracle, he takes away an opportunity to believe in him without seeing the miracle. And that's important to Jesus. He said this to Thomas. If you remember the story with Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, because after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the other uh, apostles, right? Judas was actually already out of the way. He, he betrayed Jesus and has committed suicide. The other 10 were together in one place, and Jesus shows up to them, appears to them after he rises from the dead. Thomas wasn't with them. 
So they're all excited. We saw Jesus back from the dead. And they go and tell Thomas, we saw Jesus, right? He's, he's back from the dead. And Thomas says, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and put my fingers through the nail prints in his hands, I will not believe. That's what Thomas said. That's how he earned the nickname, Doubting Thomas. And then Jesus appears the next Sunday. And uh, he tells uh, Thomas, Thomas, come. Look at my hand. Put your fingers into my hand. And Thomas falls down on his knees and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says this to him. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is not something I said, something Jesus says, that it is more blessed, we are more blessed by believing Jesus without seeing a miracle. God delights in faith. And he delights when we believe in him without needing to see a miracle. So God sovereignly decides he can do a miracle, he can choose not to do a miracle, but miracles do not guarantee a person will believe. And they do take away the opportunity to believe without seeing a miracle. So I started this message with a question. What do you do when opportunity knocks? Here's your opportunity. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. He's offering you salvation. Great and free. What are you going to do with that opportunity? So I know many of you have taken that opportunity and have uh, secured yourselves to, uh, to Jesus and you have salvation. If you have not yet, I want you to spend a minute in thinking why. Why did I, did I not accept this opportunity? Here is salvation. Jesus offers me salvation for my sins, a relationship with God for all of eternity. Why not take it? So one possibility I could think of, you're not sure how. How? How? How can I secure myself to Jesus? Well, the Bible says it should not be hard. Romans 10, 8 and 9 but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. You don't need more than your mouth and your heart. Right? You don't have to pay money. You don't have to join the church. You don't have to do some great work. None of those will save you, in fact, even if you did them. You just need to believe and confess, right, based on the Word of God. If you're still not sure what it means, feel free to come, talk to me later, or whoever invited you to church. Be happy to help you with that. Shouldn't be a reason not to secure yourself to Jesus. We'll help you if you're not sure how. Another reason might be is you're not sure, you know, what's really involved Right? Is this really going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Is there some sort of a trap at the end? You know, is it some sort of you know, candy-coated broccoli or something like that? The Bible says 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Right? So the Bible invites you, well, come try it out. Right? You can always spit out the broccoli, right, if you decide it's not what you wanted. But the invitation is come and try. Come try salvation great and free. The last reason I could think of, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of reasons why people reject the Lord, but the last one that came to me is that um, you're embarrassed to do it. You're embarrassed to do it. Yeah, think of us kids going into that uh, pool with coins in it. Can we get a picture up? Why do people not go in there and get the coins? They're there, they're free. There's lots of them. The truth is they're embarrassed, right? What does it say about you? Well, I'm desperate. I don't have a penny in my pocket. That's my chance for breakfast this morning, so I'm going in there. Right? Well, people don't want people to think that about them, right? So they stay away. It can be like that with salvation. People say, well, you know, if I secure myself to Jesus, if I put my trust in him to save me, what am I saying about myself? Well, number one, I'm saying I'm a sinner. I deserve the judgment of God. People don't want to say that about themselves, even though it's true. It's true about every one of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no person in this room who is not a sinner. But we don't, don't want to admit that. And the other is that we're helpless to save ourselves. We need somebody else to do it. I can row my way across the Indian Ocean. Yes, I can. Thank you very much. We can't. We can't. There's a story of mothers bringing their children to Jesus. And the disciples were upset with their distraction. And uh, Jesus was upset with his disciples. And he said, let the little children come to me. And then he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Why? Why do you need to be like a little child? You see, a little child doesn't have any pride to lose. They'll go into that pool and get the coins. That's the way we have to be with Jesus. Just let go of your pride. You see something that you want. Jesus is better than whatever other people think of you. Go into the pool and get it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great salvation. We thank you that it, was, that it is free for us. We thank you that though it uh, cost you more than we can understand, yet you deemed us to be worthy of it. Lord, you came into this world to save sinners, and all of us fit into that category. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you, who have not yet secured themselves to that, to that rock who is Jesus, that you might help them do so, and even do so today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.